0: You know, if you're not at the decision-making table, no one is going to think of your needs for you. No one is going to guess them for you.
1: Hi and welcome everyone to the second episode of our Water Month. For one month, we'll be focusing only on the nexus of water, gender, and climate change. And today, I'm talking to Juliet Lassman. Juliet is a policy analyst in the Water Governance and Circular Economy Unit at the OECD Center for Entrepreneurship, SMEs, Regions and Cities. OECD stands for Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development and is an intergovernmental organization with 38 member countries that aims to create better policies for better lives. Juliet has contributed to national and sub-national policy dialogues on water governance, the circular economy, and nature-based solutions. Plus, she worked on the blue economy in cities. Hi, Juliet. I am so happy to have you here today.
0: Hi, Anika. It's great to be on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It is fantastic to have you here because
1: I know the first time I approached the OECD for having a podcast and having this recording today, I don't know, it's... I think it's been 50 emails going back and forth to come into that day. And I'm literally so, so happy that it finally worked. And we're here to talk about that very, very important topic, which is what water has to do with the nexus of gender and climate. So thank you again for for taking the time and being here.
0: Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here.
1: <laughs> um, Juliette, I want to dive already into the very first question where are you right now and where did you actually grow up to give us a little bit of outline of who is this person we're listening to
0: yeah so right now i'm in paris in france and i've been working there for the past three years uh, as a policy analyst at the oecd as you said i grew up in the uk but i moved to france when my uh where my mom is from as a teen And we moved to the French Alps, so at the foot of the highest mountains in Europe with glaciers and so-called eternal snow. So, you know, I was always very aware of the impacts of climate change because they were always very visible to me. Uh, And uh, then during my studies, I also lived in Colombia and in Mexico for a couple of years. And in those countries, I was really confronted with levels of inequality, including gender inequality that I'd never experienced before in the UK or France. And I'm so excited to be on your podcast because these experiences actually sparked my interest in the nexus between climate change and inequality at large. Uh, and these two topics have really been at the center of my academic experience and work. So I'm absolutely delighted to be on the podcast.
1: I'm really, really happy to have you. You just mentioned that being a in New York has aroused your interest and formed your academic um, ad- also professional life and I think it's it's pretty much the same for me because also when I went to Bolivia oh in 2013 that was back that time um my interest also grew for for the topics of climate change and especially like gender equality inequality and um how to yeah basically make the lives better for for people um But today, we're we're not about to talk about Latin America in specific, but we are rather about to talk about water, um, water governance, why water is very important and how water has to do with the whole nexus of gender and climate and climate change um, and specifically. Um, Therefore, I would like to to dive into the first question, which is to ask you if you could briefly explain why water is the most essential resource around and how it stands to be affected by climate change
0: yeah good question annika and uh i think we can all agree that water is the most essential resource around after air because absolutely all life on this planet needs it to 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 live and to thrive so from the human point of view, of course, we need water to drink. We need water to wash, but we also need water to grow the food we eat, to make the clothes we wear and to build the homes we live in, just to mention a few. So when you think about it, there isn't a single activity economic or otherwise that doesn't require water. And for this reason, the OECD has been advocating for water as a driver of sustainable development for 15 years now. The bad news is that most of the effects of climate change are felt in the water cycle and climate change already caused huge damage and irreversible losses to freshwater systems. So, for example, with retreating glaciers that we simply cannot recover. And climate change also increases the frequency and the intensity of extreme weather events like floods and droughts. Uh, We know that these events have already affected three billion people in the past two decades, which is basically half of the world population. And I'd like to flag here that these effects are being felt globally and including in OECD countries, you know, when we think of water and climate change, I think automatically most of us see images of rivers running dry in sub Saharan Africa or devastating floods in Southeast Asia. But in reality, uh, temperate regions like Europe and North America are already facing the effects of climate change. And, you know, we're living through it now. Uh, in July this year, almost half of the, EU in the UK was exposed to uh, warning levels of drought. Uh, In the U.S., uh, we're seeing the state of California, which is historically dry, is actually facing the worst drought in 1,000 years. And so it's had to put in drastic measures to reduce its water use. And as I speak to you now, uh, from Paris in early August 2022, France is already going through its third heat wave of the summer. And the bad news is we're still only halfway through the summer. So I think this goes to show that even OECD countries cannot take their levels of water security for granted
1: yeah absolutely i mean you're you're in france i'm in germany and also germany i don't know the how many like how many warnings for heat waves we've got so far so it's been it's been actually a lot and especially in cities where, where a lot of people live um warnings for heat waves have been have been well <laughs> shout out a lot of times already um now that you've mentioned why water is important and how it sounds to be a factor about climate change, how does gender come into come into the whole picture? So how does the gender climate nexus materialize in relation to water? Um, could you could you line that out a little bit?
0: Sure. So I think to start with, to understand how the gender climate nexus actually materializes in relation to water, we need to frame it within the broader environmental context. And so in that context, we know that women are affected uh, by environmental degradation more than men for two main reasons. The first is that women are more economically vulnerable than men. So we know that women account for a larger share of the world's poor. We also know that they account for a larger share of the people employed in the informal sector. So they have less economic resources than men in general, and they have less access to formal employment with contracts that do provide you know, a certain level of protection to environmental risks. And so this lack of resources and access to formal employment makes them more vulnerable to environmental risks and disasters uh, like droughts or floods. The second reason is that in most societies, women have traditionally had and continue to have uh, responsibilities related to the household and related to their community that depend on the environment and that depend on the availability and quality of natural resources. Uh, to be very concrete these include subsistence farming, uh, these include gathering fuel such as wood for the household and of course collecting water. So just to give you an idea the UN estimates that women and girls are responsible for collecting water in 80% of the households worldwide that don't have access to water on site. So, you know, these are these responsibilities basically make women and girls more vulnerable to environmental risks and changes and disasters. Now, all climate change does is that it comes and intensifies these existing inequalities by accelerating environmental degradation and by increasing uh, the number of extreme weather events. So if you just need one statistic to understand this, it's that more than 75 percent of people displaced by climate hazards so that's three in four people are actually women and maybe i can give you a couple of examples of how water risks uh, actually affect women in real life in relation to what the oecd defines as too much water so that's you know floods and uh, other hazards related to too much water like landslides these always tend to hit the most vulnerable groups the hardest and of course women are no exception so when a disaster like a flood or sea level rise or tornado strike women are less likely to survive than men they're also more likely to be injured and that's because of existing inequalities Uh, for example in 2004 the tsunami in southeast asia oxfam reported that more women had died in thailand rather than uh, compared to men because women tended to stay behind to look for children, they tended to stay behind to look for relatives, and because they just didn't have the skills like swimming and climbing trees, which are traditionally taught to boys, but you know, not to girls. And once these disasters have happened, women are often held back uh looking after you know uh, the injured children or the elderly because they have that traditional role as caregivers and so this uh makes their return back into paid work come at a later time than than it does for men now if we look at the risk of what the OECD calls too little water so that's drought or water scarcity basically you know when the closest water source has dried up or when the water supply is cut for several hours a day because there's water scarcity or because there's a drought, then the burden tends to fall on women and girls. Uh, This leads to two main outcomes. So first, it means that women spend less time at school or on activities that generate income. And the second is that it makes them more subject to gender-based violence. So if women have to travel longer to fetch water, then they're more likely to face attacks Uh, sexual abuse while fetching the water, which is already a well-known issue. And once they're back in their homes, you know, if they fail to collect the water because of water scarcity, then that increases their risk of uh, being subject to violence at home. So I think with these examples, we can really see that the impacts of climate change uh, on women and in relation to water are already very, very tangible. Oh, absolutely. Um, But I think
1: the points you made with the lack of resources that traditional Responsibilities or, or or roles that women and men have um, make it again very very clear how how intense and how central the role is that water has um, when we think about overcoming gender inequalities and yeah to establish gender equality and establish a, a fair um, world for for all genders. Um, at that point, actually, I would like to mention again the, the episode number eight um, with Granas Balosh from Pakistan. Because she made some some very good examples um, how people are really affected. And she shares some stories from people in Pakistan being affected by too little water. So that was what you just mentioned from the OECD, um, she shares some very, very nice stories. And I would highly recommend everybody listening to listen to that episode as well. Um, but now coming back to the point of water governance, how can actually improving water governance uh, contribute to addressing these, these inequalities that you have just mentioned and outlined and pictured?
0: Yeah, excellent question. So I think I'd like to start first of all by maybe defining water governance because I'm not sure that everyone is very familiar with the term. Uh, So I'd like to give the OECD definition of water governance, which is the range of formal and informal rules, practices and processes through which decisions are taken and carried out. Stakeholders can raise their concerns and especially decision makers are held accountable for water management. So it's important to flag here that the OECD sees water governance, not as an end in itself, but as a means to an end. And the end to that is a water governance system, basically, that helps to manage water and related risks in a sustainable, in an integrated and especially in an inclusive way uh, at an acceptable cost and within a reasonable time frame. So good water governance in itself should help ensure access to clean and affordable water for all. Uh, But specifically talking about women and water governance, I think we need to highlight two things. The first is that we need to involve them more in water decision making. And the second is that we need to leverage their role in the sustainable management of water resources. So maybe I can go into those points a bit more into detail. So first, uh, let's look into how involving women in decision making more can actually improve outcomes for women and society at large. So again, reframing this into the broader environmental perspective, the literature shows that involving more women in decision-making improves environmental outcomes. So, for example, women who are in political power are more likely to support gender-sensitive issues like environmental ones, like water. And having more women in power also increases women's participation in politics. I think you'll agree that if you see a woman in power, you're more likely to think that you can also be in power yourself. This sends a positive signal. Uh, And other studies have shown that women in political decision making pay more attention to environmental policies, and there are several examples of this. But just to give you one, a recent study of legislators in the European Parliament found that men and women, although they express similar concern for the environment. So at the same kind of levels, women were actually more likely to support environmental legislation, and this was actually the case regardless of political ideology or nationality. So the good news is in OECD countries, we're seeing that women are increasingly playing a role in environmental and water-related decision-making. According to an OECD working paper that was published uh, a couple of months ago, uh, about 40% of ministers of the environment on average in OECD countries were women in 2020. So this is a huge improvement and it's very good news. And we see that women add value to water governance because of the heightened awareness and their heightened focus on environmental risk. Just to give you a couple of examples, uh, in Chile, the previous Minister of Environment, Carolina Schmidt, uh, led new climate legislation that mandates, that makes it uh, mandatory for river basins to set up strategic plans uh, to be more resilient to droughts, which the country is currently going through. And at local level, another example from Latin America is uh, from Mexico City, where the mayor, Claudia Scheinbaum, has committed billion US dollars to give everyone access to drinking water by 2024 in Mexico City. The bad news is uh, women are still underrepresented in water decision making and in environmental decision making in lower income countries, which are paradoxically the places where women are disproportionately affected by water issues and environmental issues. And they're also the areas that stand to be most affected by climate change. The second way in which good water governance can help address gender inequalities is by boosting the role that women play in managing water resources more sustainably. And again, framing this within the broader environmental context, uh, studies have shown that women are more likely to adopt what we would call green attitudes or uh, sustainable consumption patterns. So they're more likely than men to do things like recycling, buying more sustainable products, driving less, using alternative transport modes and so on. So embedding a gender lens, what we call a gender lens into environmental policies can really help to boost women's existing contribution to uh, achieving more sustainable consumption patterns and the same holds for water. So we have qualitative studies in water that show that involving women in the management of water resources and in water infrastructure uh, tends to improve the efficiency and tends to increase the output of projects. And other evidence shows that water projects that were designed and implemented with women involved in all stages of the decision-making process were more sustainable and effective than those without. And the good news is also that in the private sector, water companies are increasingly recognising the role that women play in the sustainable management of water resources. So the share of female workers in water utilities has increased from just 13% in 2011 to 22% in 2016, which is a massive increase, you know, almost 10 percentage points. Uh, On the other hand, this also means that women at 22% still make up less than a quarter of formal workers in water utilities. And the even worse news is that women employed in the water sector earn about 25% less than their male counterparts. So we still have a long way to go. Uh,
1: Yeah, we still have a long way to go. I (laughs) definitely agree. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, I think it's um we we again talking about about the points of embedding a gender lens, involving women in management and decision making processes, um to to really get the voices of all heard and well we need all hands on deck to to overcome the the crisis of our time and water is definitely one of the most important resources where it's important that everybody has like that the voices of everybody are, are heard basically um Julia there is now a very like a question coming to come into my mind um if we go back to to the name of the OECD which is of course the organization for economic cooperation and development which is an intergovernmental organization having 38 member countries so now the question coming up to my mind or popping up is what is the OECD actually doing to help its member countries to achieve um the SDG 6 which is clean water and sanitation by 2030 well the short answer is a lot
0: let me go into detail uh so yeah the the OECD has actually been working on water for more than 15 years and over those 15 years of work on water uh, we have seen that water crises are often first and foremost governance crises so good water governance is absolutely key to achieving sdg6 which seeks to guarantee the availability and sustainable management of water and sanitation for all as you mentioned uh, so, to address water governance challenges in a concerted and a systemic way, the OECD created the Water Governance Initiative in 2013. And what is the Water Governance Initiative or the WGI? Well, it's a network of over 100 experts, uh, policy makers, practitioners from the public sector, the private sector and civil society that gathers twice a year on a policy forum. And over the past decade, the WGI has created a framework and it's created tools to support governments from OECD, but also other countries and stakeholders to improve water governance. So the framework I'm referring to is the OECD principles on water governance, uh, which were co-produced by the Water Governance Initiative, or WGI for short. The principles were endorsed at ministerial level by OECD countries in 2015. And these 12 principles basically set out a checklist or a list of must do's for governments to design and put in place water policies that are effective, that are efficient and that are inclusive. And so these principles go from uh, very basic things, from defining clear roles and responsibilities and managing water at the right scale to using financial and regulatory tools involving stakeholders and ensuring integrity and transparency. Uh, So the principles, as I said, uh, create a, a checklist for governments, but they can also be used as a tool for stakeholders and governments themselves to assess how water governance systems are performing. So in that vein, to actually put the principles into place, the WGI has created two main tools. The first is the water governance indicator framework which was developed to support multi-stakeholder dialogues on water governance and to help uh, with the self-assessment of water governance systems at all levels of governments, whether that's cities, uh, basins, regions or national level. And what it does is it allows governments and stakeholders to evaluate their water governance systems by asking three main questions on the policy framework, on the institutions and on the instruments in relation to each of the 12 OECD principles. So stakeholders that take part in the assessment answer those questions using a traffic light system, you know, so uh, green, yellow and uh, red, which allows then a very easy visual representation of results and allows us to see if stakeholders basically agree or disagree if there's a consensus or not on how the water governance system is working. And this year, the WGI launched the OECD guide on how to assess water governance, which is basically uh, a one-stop shop for carrying out these assessments. Uh, so it ten- it contains uh, very detailed steps on how to do so exactly. Uh, and the WGI also released a three-minute video explaining what the OECD principles are and how they can be used, uh, which is available on the website of the OECD Water Governance Programme. Now, I really want to flag here that this work has not been limited to OECD countries, and actually the WGI, for instance, has paid uh, particular attention towards challenges in Africa uh, in in recent years. So last year in 2021, we released the results of a policy dialogue in the city of Cape Town, South Africa, which is well known for its uh, recent water scarcity challenges and the fact that it almost reached day zero. Uh, We also released a report on water governance in African cities, and so as a follow-up to this work, we teamed up with UCLG Africa, that's United Cities and Local Governments Africa, to launch a roundtable of African mayors for water security, and so the aim of the roundtable, which brings together about 50 mayors from cities of different sizes across Africa, is to raise the voice of uh, local players and mayors in particular and to boost the design and implementation of more robust local water policies so at the ninth world water forum in dakar in senegal this year uh, mayors from around the world not just africa joined the round table as observers and adopted an action plan of mayors local and regional governments for water security which uh, until now has been signed by over 80 local leaders And what the action plan does is it sets out 12 concrete steps that local leaders can take to ensure the right to water and sanitation as set out by SCD6, uh, as you mentioned, uh, but also achieve other objectives like increasing resilience to water risks uh, that would be exacerbated by climate change. In terms of the next steps, the WGI will discuss how to implement the action plan towards the 10th World Water Forum uh, in Bali, Indonesia in 2024. Uh, it will do so at its next meeting in September. So stay tuned because we publish updates very regularly on the OECD Water Governance Program webpage.
1: Well, as you are working as a policy analyst in the Water Governance and Circular Economy Unit at the OECD, um, it was to expect that the OECD is doing a lot, but that the OECD is doing that much, I wouldn't have expected that. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you for for giving us a brief outline of what and how much the OECD is doing about, about it. And especially the water governance initiative and um, the website of it, I will post that into in, in the info box because I think we all can gather some very important information from that. So thank you a lot. Um, Juliet. you've just mentioned some um, that you have some principles and some must-dos for, for governments um but now in relation to water governance what recommendations would you give to achieve climate justice and gender equality at an institutional level is there anything any recommendations that you could highlight and that you would say that like that is an absolute must do what is what is it
0: Well, I'd say there's a lot to do to uh, achieve climate justice and gender equality (laughs) at an institutional level. But I think to break it down, uh, maybe we can focus on three concrete actions that uh, can be taken at an institutional level uh, to achieve climate justice and gender equality. Uh, And I would say that those three things are awareness, involvement in decision making and data. So The first thing to do, I think, is really to raise awareness on the issues that we're facing because not everyone is aware and then to build institutional capacity to actually deal with those issues. So this would start by raising awareness of the different impacts that men and women face in relation to climate change in relation to water issues uh, among all institutional staff working on these issues and. Once we've raised awareness, then we need to build staff capacity on how to deal with those issues, not just in policy making, but also in the workplace, you know, through things like unconscious gender bias. And here I'd really like to point out that this is absolutely not limited to men because we know that even women are are subject to to gender bias. It's not uh, just uh, an issue with men. I think once those two conditions are in place, so raising awareness and building capacity, uh, this then facilitates the system, the systematic application of a gender lens to water and environmental policies. So a recent survey of OCD member countries showed that 21 out of our 38 member countries consider gender in environmental policies, at least sometimes, which is a pretty good result. But only 11 countries consider it systematically. So again, we still have a long way to go. The second thing we need to do is to involve women and also other vulnerable groups in water decision making to better consider their needs, because otherwise they just simply won't be taken into account. You know, if you're not at the decision making table, no one is going to think of your needs for you. No one is going to guess them for you. So as I mentioned earlier, the literature shows that including more women in decision making doesn't just benefit women, it actually creates benefits and improve well being for all. But um, one of the ways that we can involve more women in decision making is by putting in place measures such as uh, quotas that mandate, you know, X percent uh, of women have to be at the table in water decision making. But we actually also need to take action on the root causes for women and other vulnerable groups, for example, uh, indigenous people not coming to the table in the first place, like lower access to education or unconscious biases. And last but definitely not least, we need to collect more disaggregated data that would allow us to consider these differentiated impacts of water risk and climate change between, when, between men and women, but also other vulnerable groups. So, for example, we increasingly have access to spatially disaggregated environmental indicators like on air quality, we have data at regional and even local level. But the IPCC uh, pointed out in its latest report this year that uh, vulnerability at different spatial levels is actually worsened by inequity and by marginalisation linked to gender. But also, of course, things like income levels or ethnicity. So if women and other vulnerable groups are being affected by environmental issues differently, we need to be able to measure that and take action accordingly because we cannot manage what we cannot measure, as we often say at the OECD. So to achieve climate justice and gender inequality uh, at the institutional level, we need to generate awareness, involvement and data, in my opinion.
1: Thank you. Thank you so, so much. These points are very, very valuable from, from my point of view and I absolutely agree with all of them and one point that very very stuck with me like a point that everybody of us working in 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 institutional organizations or or not but like a point that everybody can do in the everyday life is to 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 raise the voice because you you mentioned you have to raise your voice on your own nobody is going to do it but um a point like that, that stuck with me for the awareness especially is that you can raise your voice of course but you can also be an ally and raise the awareness that these problems exist and that we have to work on them and just yeah be an ally to to support people who are in need and who can't maybe raise raise their voices so so thank you thank you for making that point again very very clear and um yeah, because everybody has a voice and I think we should all reduce, use our voices for, yeah, making the world a better place. If we can just do by raising the voices, why, why not using, why not using it? Um. Yeah. Thank you, Juliet.
0: Absolutely. Thank you, Annika.
1: It was fantastic having you here, Juliet, And I want to thank you again, very, very much for your time, for your insights and for Every information that you shared with us, it was very, very interesting, valuable. And I, I am literally blown away by all the work the OECD does. And I'm looking forward to seeing the results and to one day. well, I hope that one day, everybody on this earth, on this planet has access to clean, clean water and sanitation.
0: Yep. That's what we're, that's what, that's what we're working towards. And thank you for the very important work you're doing with the podcast. Thank you,
1: everybody, for listening. Please make sure to hit the bell to not miss any episode because only together we can change our world for the better.